Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear to be ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Tyler Sapala works with his mind and works with his hands. He is a teacher, coach, painter, cabinet installer, repairman, piano tuner, and all-around Mr. Fix-It. Although he double majored in college, he teaches three totally different subjects that he didn't major in. I've interviewed Tyler before about the crazy experiments he's done, like not eating for five days. And I've talked to Tyler about his life on FIRE. FIRE is the plan known as Financial Independence Retire Early. And today, we are going to discuss something else that is, be- that is becoming very unusual in some places, and that is working with your hands and not just the ways to make money at this, but also the ways to have a better life. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Tyler Sapala. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Tim. It's good to be with you. Well, you're a highly skilled man. You paint, you make cabinets, you landscape, you tune pianos. You've also done every extra duty job I can think of uh, where we work as a teacher and as a coach. What else do you do? Well, that's a long list already. (laughs) I don't do all those all at the same time, by the way, but <laughs> I currently, I, I mean, I'm doing uh, a lot of painting and cabinetry, um, carpentry things this summer, um, but I've been doing some more m- motorcycle maintenance on my, on my uh, Triumph and um, see what else am I currently doing. Um, yeah, just kind of whatever pops up, whatever like handyman stuff, I've been installing some drywall at at my house and uh, doing some popcorn removal for some people. It's kind of just like whatever, <clears throat> whatever's happening in, in my own life and in um, people around me. Um, if it's something I've never done before, I love researching it and, and going after it. I, we're going to kind of get into some of the details and all this later, but there's just two thoughts that pop into my mind right off the bat. One is you just saved so bloody much money doing this. And you save the people around you so much money doing these kind of things. Because if people have a problem with their drywall, I, I honestly think about a third of the people are thinking, what is drywall? And <laughs> I have a problem with it. What do I do? And then people with popcorn on their ceiling. I, I've known people who've had popcorn peeling off the same popcorn for, since the 20th century. Yeah. It's been peeling since 1999. Um, so, so I just think... A lot of people wouldn't know what to do, or they would think, hey, that's a professional. And we're going to kind of get into this later, but there's just a gigantic, what they call a skills deficit out there, where I think we're short of something like 7 million workers who can do this kind of work. And a lot of people make a lot of money doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. So, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I think there are definitely um, times when I save money um, doing my own maintenance or whatever it might be, but... There are times too when I when I wish I would have taken it to a professional. Like for example, working on my motorcycle back in uh, January, I was trying to replace um, the wheel. It's just getting too worn out. But I made the mistake, which I should have known better, of trying to change the tire, which is like it's just so tightly fixed onto the onto the rim that it's so hard to get it off. Uh, so I made the mistake of trying to do it when it's cold. The best time is to do it when the rubber is nice and warm. And so trying to get it off in January, I actually kind of like 
warps the the rim of the motorcycle wheel Ew. and i was like oh no I, like because i could have it could be like two hundred dollars to replace that something like that can you still drive it uh yeah i was able to to fix it up and i, I didn't i didn't wreck it too much <laughs> but sometimes I, I do like i think to myself like ah is it is it worth it to do my own stuff and maybe i should maybe i should just not <laughs> right or something and, and leave it to the professional. Um, but I would say ma- the majority of the time, as long as it's not something that's highly specialized, I normally like prudent about uh, messing too much with things. Like like you mentioned, the piano tuning. I, I do like <clears throat> the basic tuning, but if there's something wrong with like the soundboard and, and it's, it's something that like, like if uh, a string were to totally bust, um, could I replace it? Probably if I researched enough and had somebody helping me. Um, but normally for something that's like that, um, needs to be that precise and meticulous, I'll leave it to the expert. Um, but yeah, I would say it, the majority of this is not like a, a desire just to save money. I think I actually just prefer um, doing my own maintenance. And um, I think some people would be like, why? Why did you <laughs> want to waste time and you could do other things? But I, I think I just am naturally not um, the, the type of person who likes to like watch too much television or um, have a lot of like downtime for my leisure. I actually prefer my leisure to be spent like learning things or interacting with with uh, many different parts of reality, like in a, in maybe in a physical or a tangible way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's great for getting us started and we're going to get a lot more into it. Yeah. Saving money, I think would be a secondary benefit to all this. Yeah. 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 Well, your versatility just doesn't end with these physical skills. I mean, you get paid to do a lot of these things that we just listed off. Um, but you're also a teacher and here you double majored in college in all things philosophy and theology, mm-hmm. which, wow, like had I not known you, I would not have seen that one coming. Like, hey, I tune pianos, I installed cabinets, I fixed motorcycles. What was your degree in? Oh, it was theology. It was <laughs> philosophy. I mean, what does Aristotle have to say about motorcycles? Turns out maybe a lot. But here as a teacher, this is my question. You are teaching two things that I don't see the connection to your college majors. You're teaching Latin and you're teaching Western Civ. Mm-hmm. And I think you've also taught PE, like maybe one section. What are those, how did that come about given your majors? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so well, well, to clarify, my Western Civ class is, is kind of like a, uh, introduction into Western philosophy, mm. so there is definitely like connection to like what I studied. I'm not, I'm not completely underqualified. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's okay. Look, I'm I'm freelancing. I had to take this big test called the Praxis, which right, said, okay, right. now you're te- you're certified to teach social studies. Mm-hmm. I've been teaching social studies for several years, and uh, I was okay. I got a perfect score on the Praxis right, test, right. but there are certain subjects you can read your way into, kids. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like right. right now, I've read four books in a row on economics. I, I've learned a lot about economics. I, other people go to college and major in it and more power to them. That sounds like an exciting major. But then these economists write books and then I could read them, which right. is just wonderful. Right. It, yeah, that's definitely a good point that they, 
the only, there's not one way to learn about something, which is to go to college. Like you can definitely learn about many things outside of college and without getting a degree. <clears throat> but yeah, I did definitely study philosophy in college and that has influenced like what I teach. Um, and in Latin, I also have a, a minor in classical languages. So <clears throat> um, I definitely spent some time in college doing that as well. Um, but the other things, yeah, like there's not like a huge connection between what I studied in college and like all the like little hobbies that I am into now. However, I think there is a connection. Like you mentioned Aristotle having something to do with motorcycle maintenance. Um, it reminds me of the, <clears throat> the one book by, I think, Matthew D. Crawford. I think that might be his name. Um, the, the title of the book is Workshop as Soulcraft. Oh, and, yeah. I've heard of this, but I've not read it. Mm-hmm. So he, he kind of gives like a lot of the philosophical um, perspectives of, like, of the benefits of interacting with the physical parts of life um, and how that is so beneficial for our, our well-being. Um, and he, he himself is uh, a motorcycle owner and he does his own motorcycle maintenance and he like throughout the book expands upon how he thinks his interaction with the motorcycle allows him to basically like integrate further into reality and help him to become more uh, united with his motorcycle and to understand the motorcycle more. Um, and I think like I see his point in, in, in my own studies of Aristotle, I think. <clears throat> Like Aristotle talks about, um, I think I mentioned this maybe last episode, but um, we want to become fully human. Like we, we want to like really be the most alive as possible. And we are human beings. And, and he talks about like whatever type of thing you are, whether like um, you're like maybe nurturing a dog or you're nurturing a uh, a plant like you want that thing to become most itself as possible mm. so but you have to really know like what you're dealing with whether it's a german shepherd or you're dealing with an oak tree you need to know like how does an oak tree flourish and w- what are the conditions that i need to um, help this oak tree have so that it will perform optimally um, but the same is true with with a human being and, and there are specific things that are unique to human beings and we want to provide the, the framework so that we can flourish as a human being. So I think Aristotle would say that we are, <clears throat> what makes us unique is we are rational and we want to like, we want to do the things which um, help us to achieve optimal rationality to think well. Um, but it doesn't, I don't think it ends there. Um, we can think about things, but we can also act upon them. And, uh, we're not just a pure intellect as well. We, we are physical. We are an animal. And our interaction with the physical world is also a part of our well-being. So I think, I think Matthew Crawford makes a good point that, that uh, like understanding philosophy kind of helps us to understand like it's beneficial um, for us as a human organism to, to do these things that help us become more ourselves by integrating into into read the physical parts of life, integrating into reality as, as deep as possible. So I become more human by working on my motorcycle. Yeah, <clears throat> basically, you could take it a million ways, I think. Um, but like, there there are many a million avenues you could pursue. Like, you could uh, become more human by like entering into the reality of uh, motorcycle maintenance or 
into the reality of like your physical well-being of working out or reading books. Like there's so many ways to enter in more deeply um, of the, the human experience, I guess. And there's, there's good things which take you deeper into well-being and there's things that obviously take you away from well-being. Um, but I think that's like the big question is it's like, I think it's, it's necessary to continue ref, continually reflect on is this, is this making me a better human being or a worse one and to do the things which are making you better and refrain from the, the things which are making you worse. Without me overloading us, I suppose, on philosophy, is it the same thing if I say this is making me more human or this is making me a better human? Or are we using more and better kind of as synonyms? Um, yeah, I, I, I would say so. Um, yeah. So if working on my motorcycle makes me a better human because, mm -hmm. hey, I'm more in tune with reality because it's either fixed or it's not fixed. Mm -hmm. I guess it could be partially fixed, but it's going to last longer and run better if it's completely fixed mm -hmm. versus, oh, it's not fixed at all. It doesn't run. Uh, working on my motorcycle tunes me in more with reality. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I guess we have this whole platonic ideal of what is the perfect motorcycle <laughs> that we're striving to build. Right, right. Yeah, and it, and it I think there's just something so satisfying of, um, of increasing your knowledge of, of things, but not just like anything, but like the things that are like pressing upon you. Like a motorcycle is something I ride all the time. And it's, it's just so satisfying to know more about how to make it run better. Mm. You know? So the things in my life, which I think I want to increase my, um, my understanding of are the things that, that press up against me. Um, more than others do you know like I don't, I don't care about really like how how to fix maybe like a like a, a bagpipe you know? <laughs> right 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 i never interact with something like that but right. something that like is pressing against me um not only i think it's beneficial to increase my understanding of many things but but especially the things that i interact with well they they do say and, and i tend to agree with this that if people pursue perfection in one area such as fixing a motorcycle or planting a garden, then that allows them to understand at least something of how other people are pursuing perfection in their own area. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you have to be pretty blind or pretty ignorant to think that everybody else's job is easy and your job is hard. I, on the surface, other people's jobs do look easy. You know, like if you want to be Michael Jordan, all you have to do is put the basket in the hoop. That's all you got to do, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I just kind of feel like once you get into any sort of a job whatsoever, you realize, wow, there's about 50 hidden moving parts. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things like, gosh, hey, I'm the janitor. There's actually a million nooks and crannies and there's probably special chemicals and special rags and certain times of day where this is optimal. And then there's getting along or not getting along with your coworkers and your boss and your clients and mm -hmm. just everything is complicated. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my take yeah. on things. Yeah. You mentioned the example of gardening. I think that's a wonderful activity um, to increase your interaction with reality. And it's just, again, it's, it's just, that one's a satisfying thing because you are, um, you're starting to understand something so fundamental to your existence, which is food. Yeah, and, to eat. Yeah. And, and how, how food is cultivated and, um, 
yeah, it's just like you're you're becoming one with reality in the reality specifically of of food and how it's grown and how it's it's taken care of, and and it's a satisfying thing to be able to consume what you're taking care of, and that's another experience that you're that's um, rewarding you for for like and. and entering further into the, the mystery of existence itself. Well, and I just kind of want to give the opposite on this just to sort of prove the point. Um, so when I studied math, we did this thing called reductio ad absurdum, where you assume the opposite, and then you show the opposite is false, and then that was supposed to show that the thing is true. Well, here I'm, I'm thinking about addicts. Addicts as being people who are detached from reality. So, you know, I've had some friends who have gone into Alcoholics Anonymous, and just a big thing that they promote is, you know, you really should own a plant, and you should own a pet, like perhaps a dog or a cat. And after a year, if the plant is still alive, and if the cat and dog are thriving, then you can enter into a relationship with another person. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is, is that the plant is going to help get you back in contact with reality. Because maybe when you were a full-blown alcoholic and you needed to go to AA to get your life out of the ditch, well, you didn't really have a connection with reality. And now your connection with reality is going to come back because you're going to keep this plant alive and this dog is going to be happy after a year because it's thrived yeah. and you've had to submit to reality right so so I, that's i guess my kind of like hey assume the opposite like you, you can't if the plant or animal die then you're in deep trouble you're not connected to reality right it so. reminds me of uh, an occasion with my students one time at school where i was getting so frustrated at how addicted they were how, how addicted they seemed to be on the, of the computers and their phones and right because <laughs> just was like to the edge of like breaking down one class period. Um, Cause it, it is so like as, as a teacher, it's so hard to get them to get away from, from the computer screen at times, right. you know? Right. There's a book by Adam Adler, I believe it is called Irresistible. Mm -hmm. And he goes into the details of just how, for example, social media is designed mm -hmm. uh, to be addictive. Uh, they oh, patterned yeah. a lot of it after the slot machine in Las Vegas. You know, the intermittent reward. Did I get a like? Did I not get a like? That kind right, of thing. Right, and the colorful display. Right, right. Yeah, the bells and whistles. I mean, a huge chunk of it was patterned after Las Vegas' slot machines. Yeah, I, I believe it. Um, what, what I was saying about that, though, is I think <clears throat> in that experience, the, I was so frustrated with my students, and I, I made the comment like that I, I think they're refraining from like entering into a... a a fuller experience of reality because they're retreating into this virtual existence. Right. Um, but not only that, um, like I think I, I told them something like, I think you guys are experiencing like things in your life, which are difficult, but you're actually not allowing yourself to experience those things because you cover it up with maybe your distraction of this virtual technology. And one of my students is like, now, Mr. Sapala, isn't that like a good thing? Because we're, like maybe experiencing bad things, but we're capable of like covering it up. And so we don't have to experience it then. And I was like, well, you're, you're missing the point. Now you're, you're, you're like basically functioning as a zombie. Right. You know, like you have, you have problems in your life, but you don't even know that they're problems. So like, how are you going to fix a problem if you don't even know it exists? Right. If you can't confront the problem head on, I mean, there's a little bit of pushing a problem to the side, maybe for a few hours or possibly even a few days. But um, 
what I think it's a generally accepted idea in psychology that if you suppress things long enough, they just come back 10 times worse. Right. I think like a big one is probably loneliness for a lot of these students, especially as they age. Uh, and I think social media gives you the, 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 the feeling that you are connected, but obviously you're not. Or like YouTube. There's just so many things that allow you to fill your time, but you're still alone. And you're not really connected again to reality or to other people. And, and I said, my, my desire for my students is what I told them is, like, I want you, if you're lonely, to know that you're lonely. And then maybe seek out a friendship. Or yeah. Like be a friend to somebody else who's yeah. lonely. Yeah. Because that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> for sure. And just acknowledging that there's a problem is, it's got to be the first step to a solution. Well, I, again, I guess referring back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it must have been a good model because... They had so many spinoffs. They had Narcotics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous. They had so many different things. Um, and the very first principle is that people go into denial. Oh, I've got this epic problem in my life. I, I'm drinking so much that all my relationships have fallen apart and I've been fired from six different jobs and I'm broke and my health is shot. Mm, I think I'll go back to the bar. We're back into denial. You know, The Simpsons did a very funny take on this one time where Homer, you know, who's like, you know, kind of a life failure. That's kind of the ongoing joke. You know, he's the dad. Uh, he comes home from getting fired and his kids are mad at him and all of his friends have deserted him. And he opens up the fridge and in that goofy voice, he goes, beer, there's a temporary solution. You know, it's very funny, you know, because people can relate to it because they know it's a temporary solution. Of course, the next morning you wake up and you have all the exact same problems plus a hangover, you know. So with the cell phone, yeah, I mean, it, it does so much good, but it also has those deficits, mm -hmm. as you've mentioned. Yeah, I think it, probably a good way to summarize this is, is uh, I don't know if you know the theologian um, Luigi Giussani. He, he died, I think, in 2005. Oh, I, I know his name. I think he wrote a book called Community and Liberation. Yeah, he's the founder of a movement called Community and Liberation. I see. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so he's a Catholic priest, but he... <clears throat> Sometimes it gets made fun of just because like some people think it's like too cliche, but uh, kind of like his, one of the things he's known for uh, is the, the, the phrase in English, which would be like living reality intensely. Mm. Um, like you want to live the real or reality and do it to the fullest degree that you can. Um, which like, I, I think is actually really beneficial to think of like whatever is true or whatever is real like, you don't want to avoid that thing. It might be difficult to interact with that because, like you're saying, like, these things, like, it's not easy to admit that you're lonely. It's not easy right. to admit that you have a problem. Um, but that's, I think, the only way to well-being is to admit it and then to seek what is what is good. So live the real intensely. And someone who's uh, also a follower of this movement, Communion Liberation, is Another man who um, died recently, who lived in Washington, D.C., another Catholic priest, Monsignor Albacete. Uh, and he says, I think it was in one of his books, that something similar, uh, of a similar effect, the danger is in the reduction of the intensity of the search or the scope of the search. Mm. I think it's something, again, similar to what Giazzani is saying, like, at the moment, like, the, the dangerous point in your life is when you stop intensely seeking for the truth 
and or like your if your scope is diminished like you want to seek for it in a tense degree and at a very full degree um but it's always the, this pursuit of a deeper integration into reality um and in truth that's beautifully said yeah i think that they're good wonderful men good good people to study up on okay so let's get into your specific versatilities i'm just very curious how did you specifically get into painting for example mm -hmm. Because you're getting paid for this, which is cool, but it doesn't all center around money. It's also a job well done and entering more deeply into reality. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to just center it on money, but painting. How did yeah. you get into painting? Um, originally in uh, high school, it was actually just one of my, one of my friends, my best friend. Um, his dad had a rental home, and we like, started paying for him at a, at a low rate. But it was a good experience for us, and it was good, good work for him at a cheap rate. Um, and then I did some more independent work, uh, painting for some, some family friends of mine. And that, that was all in high school. Um, and then I think it was after college that I started painting again. Um, and then mainly it was just people who were looking for cheap, cheap labor. And, um, I was looking for some extra side work. Um, and I don't know, the painting, I think some people find it like really, uh, painful because there's like a lot of detail cutting cutting into the walls and um it's just monotonous it's just not a whole lot of variety to it but i think i enjoy it because uh it's so easy to like start just listening to a podcast or an audiobook um because yeah painting is like it kind of to mind numbing thing because it's just like there's so many strokes and um it's yeah, easy just to kind of get lost in your thoughts, but I like to get lost in a, in an audio book. Or, um, yeah, it's, it's easy to, I guess, to multitask is what I'm trying to say. I used to pay for money a little bit too, and sure, absolutely, exact same thing. I uh, helped paint my house. Uh, I spent four days doing that, I think four years ago, and just eight hours a day just out there painting. And sometimes listen to an audio book, and then sometimes just had conversation with the other people and... It's, it's great. It's absolutely great. Yeah. Uh, okay, installing. Like the cabinets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you get into that? Yeah, so this one, this is something I did in high school again. It was a different job. Uh, I worked for a company called Winger, and they produced a lot of different musical equipment, like musical risers, conductor chairs, uh, musical stands. But the thing that I constructed in high school were the cabinets. And it was an easier job in high school because... <clears throat> all the boards and all the woods already like cut by a machine and all you basically have to do is put all the screws in and it's yeah pretty self-explanatory but the most recent job that i had to do is a built-in bookcase um which is much harder than i thought um a built-in bookcase the, the the tricky thing i found with the built-in is that you have to account for the curvature of the walls because mm. walls appear to be like a perfect 90 degree angle and nice and square but in reality, they're not because the wall is kind of like, they might protrude a little bit here and a little bit there. And um, <clears throat> Yeah, the house could be, I don't know, my parents live in a house that was built, I believe, in the 1890s. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I mean, it, it looks immaculate and perfect. And I assumed every wall and ceiling was at a 90 degree angle. And just speaking with you now, I realize that's completely not logical. Right. It's not logical that everything would be at a 90 degree angle that, you know, things settle Mm -hmm. Etc. Yeah, the house can like they can they can sag, 
Um, yeah, there could be water damage. There could be screws that didn't go in all the way. Um, and there also can be like extra mudding. Like when they get the drywall, they, they put a, a layer of mud on and, and make it like all nice in one and a nice surface. But with that being said, like there tends to be more mud in the corners where things meet together where they have to put joining tape. Um, so yeah, when you're like trying to install something that you built to be 90 degrees and trying to put that into something that's not 90 degrees, things just don't line up very well compared to like a, a freestanding cabinet. Um, and then to make matters worse, uh, there's a, a big window in the middle that you also have to like build around what, okay. I'm, what I'm doing currently. Um, so trying to like make everything fit perfectly <clears throat> is not easy. So there's just little things that I've had to learn in this, um, this, this one uh, activity I've been doing this summer. Uh, but it's been rewarding because like, you, you discover like, oh, by like being, uh, by like putting this specific thing in, into place and you can actually account for the curvature and there's solutions to basically everything. You just have to be like patient with it and, and be open to learning from other people. Right. YouTube is your friend. <laughs> well, do you have to draw things out architecturally? Mm, yeah, that's, a, that's a, another thing I've benefited from this summer, which is uh, computer automated design. Okay. Uh, I took a class on that in college. CAD. Yeah, CAD. Yeah. Um, so I'm thankful I did that in college and had some experience with it. Um, but yeah, it's just I use a software called SketchUp. Uh, you can use like paid versions, but you can also use an online version for free or download like the 2017 or 2018 version for free. Um, but it took some, it was just like a little learning curve. Like I, I watched a few videos on YouTube just to like kind of figure out all the shortcuts. But it's incredible how much time it saves me now and how much time it will save me into the future when I'm doing projects like this. Um, because like everything is, is measured out to like the minute, like 16th of an inch. Wow. So you can, you can put exactly like the dimensions of the wall, exactly where the window is. And then like every single piece is a component. So you can like, you can copy components and it's just, everything is like so nicely laid out compared to like just sketching it by hand. You could probably do that, but like if I wanted to make a modification, on something that I drew with pencil, it's not going to be as pretty and precise and, and you can't move things as, around as quickly and easily. So I'm thankful for that too, that I had an opportunity to work with that computer software this summer. Okay. Um, that's just pretty awesome. And this kind of gets to my point earlier about everything having 50 hidden moving parts, because once you realize, oh, the walls aren't square, then maybe you have to figure out the software. And then that's a whole extra step. And I think that's where a lot of people would quit. And they would say, I, I didn't realize there would be all these extra steps where I'd have to back up and do this, that, and the other thing. And that's when they hire you. <laughs> so, and then that's where the money is. So, and also just the, uh, the experience of stretching your mind mm -hmm. and working with your hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think a lot of this comes down to like patience with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I've seen that like throughout my, my twenties that I actually have like an enormous ability. Everybody has an enormous ability to grow and to learn things, but you have to be patient because it's, it's not fun at first. Like when you start learning to, to how to exercise properly, it does, it's, it's not enjoyable. No. Um, 
nor is like learning how to, to do cabinetry. Like you're going to get so frustrated with how, how much time it's taking, how much money it costs originally. You're not going to be the best at it the first or second time you do it. No, you're going to be the worst at it. Right. And it's, it's, it's not going to be fun, but I think the reward is in, is for those who like, who give themselves to it as much as possible. They learn and they accept the fact that like, this is not going to be, it's not going to turn out the best the first time. Right. Um, but right. eventually if I stick with it, um, I'll be, the, I'll be the type of person that is really good at, at, good at this. And, um, yeah, whatever it is, like patience truly works miracles. Well, let me ask, uh, do you think, uh, what are people like? Like, I guess this is a question about human nature. I think people want to start off at the top or at least the middle. And I think people have an excruciatingly difficult time accepting that everybody starts at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I think this is, I'll just give an example. One example doesn't prove my point, but I'll give it anyway. So I teach a personal finance class, and one of the very first topics everybody wants to learn about is investing. And I think it's because they think, hey, that's free money. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I just, I put in a little bit of money, and then it triples, or it becomes 10 times as much. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I just buy the Tesla stock, and just boom, you know. It was on sale for $10 a share. Now it's $2,000 a share. And I, I just think people, they don't like the idea of starting at the bottom. Right. Yeah. When I come talk to your class at school, it's it, it kind of like, it's a hard um, kind of like reality check. Like it's not easy to captivate an audience using the, like the tried and true methods of investing. Because like when I tell people about it, it's like, you're going to make a lot of money, but it's going to be 35 years you know, before, right. before like you're going to be a millionaire. And you, know? you actually have to have a job and you have to have some income coming in. And so you have to make some other skills happen before right. you can invest. Right. So I think it'd be, it'd be like the, the exhilarating thing or the sexy thing to come in and be like, all right, you want to be rich tomorrow or you right. want to be rich at the end of this year? Yeah. And then like, let me tell you, but that's not the case. Like it's, like the, the the method that works is something that's just like set it, forget it, invest in index funds, and little by little by little, ten years after you've forgotten about it, it's like whoa, that's really shot up. Yeah, look at how that grew. Right, but it, it it's like a ten year, twenty year thing. It's not a get rich quick scheme. And and I just think it's that way with everything because right. I've I've spoken with people that I know who are in their forties and they kind of want to switch careers. And okay, that's fine. You know, I I've taught at this point I think twenty six different classes, like ten kinds of college English and four or five or six kinds of math. I think six, maybe seven, I don't know. Uh, a bunch of different types of social studies. Like I did American history, Cold War, World War II, psychology, economics. It's a lot of work. I mean, you've got to do a lot of reading to just bring yourself up to zero, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and to, to just make it barely acceptable to people. You just have to pour over book after book and you have to make all kinds of outlines and you have to talk to the people who have done it. And that's just a bank shot from what I'm already doing, which is teaching. If I switched completely, if I started, I don't know, fixing motorcycles, I, you know, I, I would have to start with, uh, you know, what are all the wrenches that people use? I mean, you have to start at the bottom. Right. I, I think people have a very mm-hmm. hard time. You know, they're in their 40s and maybe they're making, I don't know, let's just say 80000 a year. They would really love to switch to something else that makes $80,000 a year. 
mm-hmm. you know? I, I think that's how people get stuck. Yeah. You know? And I think you you are a very good testimony to this as well. Like, I think you understand that if you want to if you want to learn something or know something, like you could do it. You just have to give yourself to it. And even like this, this new podcasting thing, like, right. I think you're, you are a testimony in and of itself to like, at first it's going to be difficult and you're not going to be, um, at the place that you want to be, but you have patience with yourself. And, and you know, like as long as I dedicate a little bit of time every day, every single day, uh, it doesn't have to be a ton of time. Every right. Day. Just like, maybe 15 minutes to an hour, whatever like you can do. It's just that consistency over the course of, of a year or two years, three years. That's like what really makes you become an expert in it. But it, it's a grind and a lot of people aren't willing to have the patience for that. Or they don't, maybe they don't even believe that they're capable of it because they haven't, they haven't witnessed it in themselves before. Right. And, and it's just tough to start at the bottom, but my own personal rule kind of based on what you just said is, and and I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's right, but I, I try to find somebody who's done it and ask them all kinds of questions. But then the second thing is, is I just try to devote to half an hour a day to maybe a new thing and, uh, and just to suffer through it, you know, and just wherever I'm at, whatever my stage of knowledge is, then that's what I do for that half an hour. If it's to read economics and, if I think, oh, good Lord, why did I get into this? This is boring. Well, just suck it up, buttercup, and just put in your half an hour, you know, and then sooner or later you start to actually get excited about this new thing, and then it's more than a half an hour. But I'll make a little chart, and I'll mm-hmm. put little X's on the calendar. Hey, just a half an hour every day, and then pretty soon you make pretty good progress. Mm-hmm. So, habituate the hell out of it. Yeah, just habituate the hell out of it. So, okay, let's talk about landscaping. How did you get into landscaping? Yeah, that was a similar time period. I think that one was in college. Um, and that one, uh, that was the same summer that I did residential construction, um, I did residential construction for half the summer and then uh, it kind of slowed down a bit. And so I switched over to landscaping. So I was thankful to have the work. Um, and that one I was really glad I did because that gave me like the confidence to be able to like trim, trim like basically any type of shrubs and trees. Uh, and now I like, I understand landscaping to a greater degree. And that one, like going back to the philosophy of, of, of life and of things, um, that one kind of like revealed to me that uh, there's a specific nature again of that things things are meant to be in a specific way and what was like i think a beautiful occurrence in my own life was <clears throat> when trimming shrubs it was almost as if the shrub itself would like kind of manifest a desired shape huh. like, like there was a specific way that the shrub was meant to be shaped oh interesting and by trimming it like you you're not trying to like impose your own will on the shrub to like like manipulate it into something it's not meant to be because if you try to do that then you're going to ruin the shrub and it's not going to look right um but like when a shrub looks really nice and tidy it's like when you've when you've discovered by trimming it like this is actually how it's meant to be arranged and then that's what you're doing by trimming it is giving it that shape again. It's kind of like giving a person the perfect haircut. Yeah. A or a poodle. Giving a poodle <laughs> so that it's like all buff and beautiful. Right. Yeah. Like, well, that is something, there's something to be said about that. Like there's, yeah, even in, um, like I do some barbering for, for, uh, my friends and myself, myself is pretty easy cause I just shaved my head. But. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're like Snoopy. You're good at everything. <laughs> Not always. 
uh, sometimes, yeah, I need a little trim from others. But uh, the same is, is true with haircuts. Like there's a specific like head shape that people have, you know, and you want to give them uh, a haircut that, that uh, matches, I guess, their head shape or like that, that uh, attracts your attention in the appropriate way. Right, right, right. So not yeah. as in, what the heck did I just see? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, not a nightmare. Right, right. Yeah. Like, I would not be able to pull off a man bun right now. There <laughs> <laughs> would be enough hair for that. <laughs> okay, so there's that. What about piano tuning? How did you get into that? I mean, because some of these don't have any sort of a surface connection. Yeah, the piano tuning um, is something I got into just because I, first of all, enjoy piano. Uh, I'm, I love playing the instrument and I have uh, since third grade. Um, <clears throat> and I think I just witnessed the cost of piano tuning. I was like, whoa, mm. piano tuning is like 70 bucks a time. And chances are I'm going to have my own piano. And I do enjoy playing it. Like if I had a piano with me in my home, which I currently don't, uh, but I hope to once I have like an established home with the family, um, I want to be playing it regularly, like every, every day or every week at least. Uh, so I do want it to be in tune and I hope that would encourage us to play it more. But I was thinking to myself, it's like 70 bucks a time. And like most piano tuners tell you, like you should get it tuned every six months, mm. which I know most people don't. Um, but if you really want it to be like sounding nice and in tune and last a long time, like you should have your piano, uh, maintained. So I was thinking to myself, like this could be a money saver by actually knowing how to do this on my own. And I, I knew it was something that was very specialized and you had to like devote a lot of time to because um, it's, it's not just like a guitar where you just, all right, I'm going to tweak this string a little bit, but there's there's like hundreds of strings in a piano itself. Like, See, I, I knew there were hundreds of strings. I mean, there's what, 88 keys? Yeah, there's, I can't remember the exact number of keys, but that sounds right. Um, but so each string, most of the strings have about three strings to, or most of the, the keys have about three strings that you're oh, actually plucking. So yeah, something that I discovered that like, once you open it up and you, when you maybe press middle C, it sounds like you're striking uh, one string. Right, so right, right. Maybe it makes sense in your mind, kind of similar to a guitar when you pluck a string that, that the string vibrates and resonates and you hear that, that, the, the vibration of the string. Um, but with a piano, and I think this is in order to get, increase the, the sound or the vibration, uh, there's often three strings for okay. a key. So okay. when I pluck middle C, I'm actually hearing those three strings. And the thing is, is that they all have to be tuned exactly to the frequency oh, wow. that you want. And if let's say maybe two are in tune and then one is not you're gonna have a bad sound you're gonna yeah you're gonna start to hear kind of like that siren noise or something wah, 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 wah. like it, it kind of like fluctuates and just it sounds pingy wow kind of the way to say it okay um so that's like part of like what you're trying to like uh, avoid when you're tuning the piano there's a lot of things to, to consider but um it's a very satisfying thing once you get like that third string into tune yeah, um, and it all sounds like you're just hitting one string now because they're all the same frequency. Um, so yeah, it was a rewarding thing in it, in and of itself just to understand that instrument more because again you feel the connection of like actually understanding it and knowing what's going on inside of it. Um, but yeah, then maybe a little bit of a, a money saver too if, if I felt confident enough to 
to do it for for like a really nice piano. See, I think that's really cool. Just everything you just said, because I've never given a moment's thought to tuning a guitar, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where you started. And we had a piano growing up, and I remember the piano uh, tuner dude showing up. And, uh, you know, we must have been doing it every six months because the piano always sounded good. And I, I just, you know, as a kid, I just never gave him a moment's thought. But now I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, from what you're saying, a guitar is simple and a piano is complex. Does the piano tuner get paid a lot more? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, <clears throat> piano tuning, if you're good at it, I would say most can do it, like, within half an hour to an hour. So they're making, okay. like... Um, I mean, aside from transportation costs and equipment costs, like 70 bucks to 125 bucks an hour. Holy mackerel. You know, that's, that's, it's a decent wage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes you encounter like other things when you're, you're tuning and you might have travel, like travel expenses, but yeah, I think if you get really good at it, I don't think I, I, like I've tuned, um, pianos for for other people but i've never done like a really like i'm not going to tune a studio piano like something that's going to be like for recitals but i can like take something that's like hasn't been tuned for quite a while and and make it sound better for sure but but in theory if you wanted to if you started tuning pianos i don't know like one a week two a week something like that then over time you know in five years this could just be a completely different career for you yeah i would probably want to get some type of mentorship or like I learned like the ins and outs of like, right. Like, cause I've, I've gone through a program, but it was uh, more of like just getting you like the, the bare essentials to like mm, tuning okay. pianos. But um, yeah, I mean, it could be, if I actually got mentored, it could be a career. Well, I'm a- don't give up on YouTube. I've got a friend who's a dentist and he was just an average dentist making, I think a hundred thousand dollars a year. Then he learned all these very specialty things for people who have special problems. And uh, he's making $300,000 a year. And I was like, wow, what courses did you take? And he goes, YouTube. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so don't give up on YouTube just yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there aren't a ton of YouTube videos on piano tuning currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have looked into that. There are like online programs, which uh, that's one of um, Piano Technicians Academy, I think is the one that I did. Uh, so yeah, there is definitely good content. You to, I had to pay a, a pretty big price for this one. Um, but yeah, it was good. Um, I think I'm currently at the place where like it wouldn't be worth it to like make this a big side hustle because it takes me um, probably like two hours to do a piano. Okay. Um, and I don't charge like I don't want to charge a huge amount because I don't consider myself to be like, right a professional. Because you're at the beginning. Yeah, I'm, I'm more of an amateur, so if I, I don't want like. I don't want the results to be like what I'm what I'm charging. I don't want that to, to be compared to the professional levels. I don't charge that much. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if if teaching like really wasn't fitting my style anymore, and I had nothing else to do, uh, yeah, you could it. you could do it. Yeah, but I you could do that with any of these things that we've mentioned with landscaping, with installing. You could do that with any of these things that we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're getting paid at these, which means hey. If nothing else, you're at the entry level, and in some cases higher than that, and you could just take them as far as they could go. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's that's just cool. Yeah, I was talking to my my uh, roommates about this this morning. Like, if that's ever something I would be interested in, like kind of being my own boss and having my own schedule, doing these these things, or maybe making carpentry like my full time thing. But 
there's some appeal to that, but I think there's also like a lot of stress involved as well. Like if I was like on a time frame, like for example, this bookcase is, it's uh, it's been an enjoyable and a rewarding experience, but it's also taken me about a month longer than I thought it would. Right, right, right. <laughs> but that's because the um, contours of the wood are such, and uh, you know the house is maybe a little older and it's settled, and nothing's at a ninety degree angle. Yeah, and I'm, I'm new to the process, but I think there's just something to be said about like having a consistent like paycheck and and not worrying like okay if I get behind who what am, what are we going to eat this month like there's security in right being, right right in being salary yeah you like, you'd have to work your way into this right. this would have to be you know I've read that a lot of companies are actually born inside of other companies that the person who starts his own thing uh, well this is just a very typical story uh, I have a friend and she runs a flower business for weddings and things like that and of course. People will pay anything for their wedding. I mean, last time I looked it up, the average wedding cost some huge number, like $34,000 a year. And she was working for somebody else and, I don't know, maybe making 12 15 bucks an hour. And she'd been doing this for five, six years, steady paycheck, and she enjoyed it. And one day she realized, wow, the boss has not been in here for like about two weeks. She calls me up and she says, I need you to do A, B, and C. And my friend would do A, B, and C like any split because she'd been doing all this stuff for six years. And then she just realized, I know how to do all the arrangements. I know how to do the books. There's not a single aspect to this business that I don't know inside and out. In fact, she realized, I know some of these things better than the person I'm working for. You know, kind of uh, the, like the secretary at the school really knows the most, that all the information goes through the secretary, that person knows the most. At that point, my friend with the flowers opened up her own flower business, and uh, it's just really blossomed. I mean, she's made a bloody fortune doing the whole thing. Um, it's been great. It's been absolutely great. Mm -hmm. But companies are born inside of other companies. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. So, well, <clears throat> you've also done some gardening, and uh, you were thinking at one point about becoming a butcher for a grocery store. And uh, I know you want to raise livestock and chickens. Can you talk a little bit about some of that? <laughs> yeah, I think that it's just more along the, the avenue of wanting to um, discover new things and integrate myself into a, a, um, a greater understanding of, of life. And I, there's just so many things to be learned, and I find it so rewarding. Like, like I mentioned before, uh, I, I value a greater agency in life and I find that the more that I'm capable of doing and understanding and the more integrated I am with reality, the, the, the better my life is and the more satisfied I am. So yeah, the, the butchering thing initially, just, I think it came up after reading some book, but I've, I think I, it might have been Michael Pollan. Is, uh, that's his name, I think. Yeah. Michael Pollan? Pollan, yeah. Pollan, Pollan? Yeah, something like that. Isn't um, he the guy who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma? Yeah, that, that was the book. Uh, I have another book by him, too. Um, Gosh, he has like one folks, called... Folks, This Isn't Normal, something like that. What's it called? Folks, This Isn't Normal, This Ain't Normal. Oh, okay, I don't know that one. Basically just about, like, the food supply. And, oh, okay. And kind of like The Omnivore's Dilemma. But, yeah. 
like he, the Abner of Boar's Dilemma, for people who don't know, is he wanted to trace where four separate meals came from. Mm-hmm. And the first one was uh, a Big Mac and fries and a shake. And I think the second one was uh, something that looks healthy, but it came from like six continents and spent a lot of time in a refrigerated truck or a refrigerated airplane or cargo ship. And then the third one was locally raised, et cetera. And then I think the fourth one was he went out in the woods and shot something. Like he shot a deer or he shot an elk or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So he just wanted to see, well, hey, I want to be with this meal from start to finish. Mm -hmm. Where did this come from? And uh, where did it go before it landed on my plate? Mm -hmm. So it's actually a really interesting book. Right. And I I think I might have gotten the idea from him, but I was thinking to myself, like, I'm kind of disconnected from uh, (coughs) the reality of, like, the the food that I eat. Like, where, where where it comes from and... And like maybe the the life that had to be given in order so that I could eat it, like the life of the people cultivating it, like they have given a lot of time to it, but then also like the life of the, maybe the chicken or the, the plant that I'm eating. And I just found myself like pretty disconnected from the food that I eat. And I, I found that it was probably something I should look into a bit more, like just again, being more connected to life itself. Um, so I was thinking to myself, like, it might be, like, a difficult experience for me to have to, like, maybe kill an, an animal, like, actually do the slaughter. Right. And, uh, but then also to be able to, like, know how to cut it and butcher it so that you, like, take advantage of, of uh, the life that was shed so that you may continue living. And, like, the, the point isn't, isn't to just so, like, you can... Kill animals. Yeah, kill animals if you're, like, a conqueror. Right. But... I think the, the point for me was like, I don't think I value the life of the chicken enough. And I think I could value it more if I actually am the one having to confront the reality of the chicken's death and, and kind of see the right. process in, it, in, in the raw form um, that it could be in. Uh, so, uh, sometimes I tell my students or tell other people that like I want to kill an animal because I think it'd be good for me. They're like, what? You're, you're why would that be good for you? You <laughs> sadist. I know. You know, right? as they munch a Big Mac. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's just like I want to be more integrated into like this whole the whole process of like where my food comes from, and, and I thought butchering might be a good next step to to achieve. Right. Right. Well, I, look, I think that's absolutely great. Mm-hmm. Have we left anything out that you would like to build or create or do or learn mm-hmm. that involves working with your hands? Like, w- what little surprise are you going to drop on me next year where <laughs> you're going to be like, hey, I'm building a sailboat, you know? <laughs> and I'll be thinking, oh, I never saw that coming. <laughs> I have thought about sailing, and I thought that'd be, that'd be an enjoyable thing someday. Too bad we're kind of far away from coastline. Um, I don't know if there's anything off the top of my head, but normally when there is an idea, I, I run with it to the to the end of the, the earth and just like research the heck out of it. So I'll let you know once the next one comes, and I'm sure you will know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I want to kind of get into some of the psychological objections people would have to what you're doing with your time, mm-hmm. you know, with your hobbies, etc. I think that one of them is that we may have already talked about a little bit, but I'm wondering if you have anything more to say on this. Do you ever run into a situation where just the lack of knowledge just stops you dead in your tracks? Um, yeah, I think it's not often that I have something 
like some type of dilemma where I have like no idea where to go to try to figure it out. Like there's normally a person that I know in my life uh, or someone I can find that can at least ask a question or YouTube. I mean, like we have such an advantage currently of being able to access so much information at, at like any time. Right. Um, so and we're using it to watch stupid cat videos. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I should stop? I watch other things that are probably not worth my time, but <laughs> we're going to be getting into like uh, this, like just funny. Like I, I, my downtime is like typically watching like impractical jokers or like just like funny stuff, you know? Or, yeah, we need that. Yeah, we so need that. It's sometimes nice just to have a little. Oh, for sure. Downtime. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, normally I, I don't know. There, there's just like so much information out there that I'm, I'm able to access like, like some type of solution. I say that normally the thing that like it, that uh, frustrates me the most is if like I, I find that I'm spending too much money maybe mm. um, on something or like I didn't anticipate spending so much money on something and, and that can be like somewhat of a defeating thing for a person that tries to save a lot. I, I think that's every person who ever bought a house, yeah. to be entirely honest. They right. tell you that the house is an investment, and then later you find out uh, it's only an investment under some very specific circumstances. Right. The house, for the most part, is just a means of uh, keeping your money together. Um, that's another story. Yeah. And if, if your mind is a little chattered or blown listening to this, just go pick up a book like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and you'll kind of learn that there's three things. There's an asset, there's a liability, and then there's something stranded in between. And that's oftentimes where a house is. Mm -hmm. Or it's a liability. Yeah. So it's probably good like when you're getting into things like this, like whether it is buying a house or like starting a new side gig, um, mentally prepare yourself that like you're going to probably spend double the time, double the money that you think you are, even after researching the heck out of it. And thinking like, oh, I got the budget perfectly. I know all the material costs and everything. Like, you're still probably going to spend at least 1.5 to two times as much as you think. That's that's probably a good number. 1.5 to two yeah. times as much. And if you don't, then then you're rewarded. Hey, then you got extra money lying yeah. around, and yeah. isn't that good? <laughs> yeah, so that's great. Okay, so I think another psychological objection people would have to some of this is like, let's say, oh, I want to pick up a little extra money as a painter during the summer. How do you develop the confidence to actually charge people for that? I realize that you're not overcharging people, but to just charge people at all, how do you pick up the confidence to to charge people? Mm -hmm. Where do your skills have to be yeah. for you to be comfortable saying, you know, I think X number of dollars per hour or however much per job is reasonable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that is a tough a tough position to be in. Um, I think <clears throat> I, I try to give myself like, like to, to, to remind myself that I have put a lot of work into a lot of these different things. Like I've been a painter now for a while. I've done a lot of painting and, and, uh, if I, if I feel like I'm very amateur in some type of thing, I normally go as like, as like low as possible. Okay, so you kind of maybe know what the market is and you know what the range is yeah. and you put yourself closer to the bottom on the mm -hmm. range. Like I'll, I'll do some researching online, like what's the typical rate for a painter? What's the typical rate for a landscaper? And then based on my own experience and my, like if they ask me to do something more specialized and then I'll, I'll adjust my price. But 
I know like a lot of the work I've been doing currently is like been for people that I know as well. And, and I want them to get like, a, I want them to be happy with the work, but also happy with the price. Right. But at the same time, I don't want this to be something I end up resenting either. Like, cause that can happen where like, you're trying to make like everybody happy. You're trying to make it cheap. And then you're also trying to like put some money in your own bank. Like it, it can be hard to make all those three line up. And you have to remember that like, if you don't, charge a decent amount then like you're going to end up presenting it and you don't want the relationship between you and the customer oh for sure to. for sure you know there's a behavioral economist uh, his name is dan Arelli, and he actually writes these really really funny books like one was called predictably irrational about how people make decisions and he basically pointed out that it's really difficult in life to mix economic and social norms in fact they often don't mix you know, you wouldn't go over to your Thanksgiving dinner at your fiance's house and say, uh, you know, to your mother-in-law-to-be, you wouldn't say, Mom, that was fantastic, and then whip out your checkbook and then pay her $100 for the meal. You know, it, things just don't match up. You can't mix economic and social norms. Another example that comes to mind is there was this rabbi, and sometimes he would marry people. And uh, this one couple afterward was going to give him a gift of $25. And then he turned it down. And he said, no, I'm doing this for free. And they said, no, we want to give you $25 for your services. And I think his ordinary price was well above that. I don't know what it was. It could have been 500 It could have been 1000 It could have been more. And he just didn't want them to think that this was even. He wanted them to understand that this was a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, like a little token gift of 25 Because that would create resentment. If right. you're used to getting paid a thousand, you get paid twenty five dollars. Good lord! Right, right. You know, good night. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's good points. So yeah, yeah. So I think what you're saying is good. Well, I think the ultimate objection is going to be this: I am just lazy. You know, like, hey, you're learning how to fix motorcycles and how to paint and how to do like specialty cabinets, and you know, look, I'm already working forty hours a week, and I, and I need some downtime, and you know, I just I just want to watch TV. How do you overcome laziness? Mm -hmm. uh, why, why do you personally feel the need? I guess this is a personal question. Why do you feel the need to pick up new skills and to learn new things when you already have a job mm -hmm. and it's very demanding? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think, I, I don't know if it's my own temperament or my disposition to feel guilty if I don't. Um, but I, I definitely am a reflective type, and I know that if I don't do these things, then I often feel like I, I've wasted something very valuable, which is my time and my life. And, mm. um, like, if I were the type of person who comes home, and it's not to say that, like, you're a bad person if, like, you come home from working 40-hour a week. Uh, like you're not a bad person if you take some time off, you know, to, Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. To, we all need some relax. time off. We yeah. all need to rest and recharge. Right. I think you sleep eight hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. I normally get eight hours of sleep. Um, so like, I definitely think there's a, a place for these types of like relaxation activities to, to happen. But I, 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 I had a professor in college who like, his name is Dr. Madden, who often encouraged us to, to view life with this deathbed mentality. Okay. Um, and, and what's think, the death? I, I feel like I know, but tell me, what's the deathbed mentality? It's basically, like, I think a lot of philosophers like, point
point to this, which is, he's not a philosophy professor, but like, imagine yourself on your deathbed when you're whatever age and, and ask yourself the question, like, would you regret doing what you're currently doing or, or living the way that you currently are living? And if you do regret that, then change it. <laughs> yeah. Why, why are you persisting? I think it's a good, it's a good reflective um, activity to do because it allows you to see through a lot of the, like, the things that you're, um, you're doing and like see like the motivation or see like, is this actually something that's worthwhile? And, and upon your deathbed, it kind of like, it's, it's a good way to feed or to, to weed through a, a lot of those, um, like the, the motivations for why you're doing these things. And, and if I would regret this on my deathbed, chances are it's not worthwhile. Gotcha. You know, so I, I think I, I kind of live with that mentality. Like, but it, I just, I, I think I just feel guilty um, if I were to spend my my time doing things. Like, if I were watching like two hours of television every day, I, I just couldn't live with myself. Or if I was, um, yeah, just living a lifestyle that's not like integrating again into a deeper um, interaction with reality. Uh, I, I would feel like I'm wasting something, like I'm wasting my agency, I'm wasting my life, and 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 also like once you do start interacting with these different elements of life, it, you just find it so rewarding. So not only am I avoiding the guilt, but I'm also I'm also like being rewarded with this wonderful sense of of agency, you know. So yeah. there's 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 multiple things going on there. You're avoiding a negative feeling, and you're you're increasing a positive feeling. Well, I, I want to tease out just a little bit more on this subject and personal finance. I'm gonna tease out this, and then a few other things. Are you trying to acquire maybe as a secondary or a third level motive beyond agency and not wasting your time? Are you trying to acquire enough skills so that in case you need them? in order to make a living, you know, like, is this plan B, C, D, E, F, G that you're creating for yourself? Um, yeah, I think that's like a secondary, again, a secondary motive. Like I can, I can view a lot of these things as like, yeah, I could probably be a bike mechanic or I could, I could probably be a bus driver or a piano tuner, whatever it might be. Um, those are definitely not my primary motivations for like beginning these activities. But they could be like level three or level four down. Yeah. And another thing to like, I think another point to be made is that these things are not like done in a vacuum either. Like when I tune pianos, it helps me understand like different, different elements of, of, of like guitar playing or like guitar playing like helps me like come up with better examples to become a better teacher. Like, I love it. Unified field theory. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, these things like they definitely have an impact on many other elements of life. And I, I find myself like just knowing that like some of the, the techniques I use in carpentry, like might transfer over to becoming a better painter. And like, yeah, it, there's, they, they definitely uh, intertwine at different points. So that that's also like, Another reason why I, I didn't think it. about that. That's really positive that things tied together, mm-hmm. but, but they do tie together. I double majored in math and English and people said, gosh, there's just no connection between those two things. But you know what? If you double major in math and English, you're going to start seeing all the connections between those two things. 
So, and then when I taught math, the uh, students who were maybe just a little bit more Englishy, uh, they just appreciated, I don't know how I spoke. They just said, you are the most crystal clear math instructor that I've ever had. And, and I know I'm not the most crystal clear math instructor anybody ever had. It's just that I spoke their language. Mm -hmm. So things do have connections. Yeah. And then you can start to see those connections. Right, totally. So that's kind of cool. Is there also burnout as a motive? Well, if I just get burned out on one thing, I mean, you're a pretty young guy. But, you know, there's a lot of people who maybe, I don't know, they do one thing for 10 years. And then they say, hey, that's enough of that. And then they want to go do something else. Like having a backup plan? Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. 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 Mm, I've never thought about it that way. Um, yeah, I think, I think I do get like interested in, in many different things on occasion. Like, like the next thing, whatever might be like mo more motorcycle maintenance. But it's, not, it's never the primary motivation. Like, oh, I might get sick of teaching soon, so I'm going to pick up something else. But yeah. And, and I do get like maybe sick of triathlon training, you know, like I did the Ironman and after doing the Ironman, I was like, well, I did that. <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> I, right, right. Don't need to do that again. Look, I, I feel for people who exercise and get hung up on one thing. I, I ran 51 marathons. I ran 500 math, half marathons. And, and I just knew any number of runners who running was the only thing that they did. And uh, the minute they stopped, uh, one poor guy, you know, he ran a marathon and then a year later he was 100 pounds overweight mm -hmm. because he couldn't bring himself to lift weights, do yoga, take a dance class, pick up a recreational sport like softball, volleyball, basketball, tennis. Uh, he didn't start swimming. He didn't start hiking. He didn't start cordless bungee jumping. Nothing, <laughs> you know, because he was just hung up on that one thing. It was the one and only thing. So, and then, gosh, I've known any number of runners that once they get an injury and their knee is done, well, boom, exact same problem. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just nothing else. It, you need something to switch to, right. I think, personally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, let's shift the subject to something which may be useful to other people in a macro way, a more obvious way. Uh, just the topic of education in the United States. Mm. And here's where I'm going with this is so I was listening to Mike Rose speak and he was saying that there are 7 million of what he calls skills jobs, which are absent mm -hmm. in the United States. And these are things like elevator repairman that pays $110,000 a year. Plumber, uh, those people like the average plumber, I think makes something like 58,000 a year. I, I did a little digging and I found 20 jobs like this. Uh, they can be classified as blue-collar jobs, and they paid from 58000 to 110000 And those numbers were when the median income in the United States was approximately 50000 And so why do these jobs pay so much? Well, because they have skills. They're not unskilled labor. And supply and demand. He said, like, I think the thing with plumbing was there was just maybe a fourth of Pennsylvania where there was something like maybe two plumbers maybe one plumber. And uh, he said like that man's rates were always going up because he was busy all the time. There were maybe two plumbers, but there weren't three. So, I mean, the, just the wages were just shooting through the roof. So Mike Rowe would put out the point of view that we need to educate more of these type of people. Our society needs more of these type of people. Um, do you have any thoughts on these missing skills? Yeah, I... I, I... I definitely see the points uh, that you're making there. And 
I often find myself like just being a little disappointed in my own education. Like, like hardly any time is spent um, doing things which are very like fundamental to our existence. Like necessary. Yeah. Like how much? I mean, I I think like overall my education was okay, but like I hardly like learned anything about cooking. And that's such a foundational human thing. Like we do it every single day. We should do it every single day. That's right. And so few of us, I think, especially like at the public school now, like that seems like a, like to most people, it's like, ah, oh, that's a waste of time. Like we need right. To- they treat those classes in some schools like they're a joke. Right, because it's not state assessed. It's not like on the AP track. It's not going to be on the ACT. It's not going to be necessary for college and. So it gets like thrown away, like as if that's not like a necessary human thing to do. But just because it's not on the ACT or the AP uh, AP test doesn't oh, mean sure. it's not like a good thing to do. And there's also been times when I'm like, I really wish I knew how to do pottery. Like that would be really right, cool. like, right. Does, does like design maybe like a, a a set of china for like my for, for my uh, children? Like wouldn't that be kind of cool if like my own child, like every single child had like their own like plate and cup and fork. And like, I don't know, like something if they had made it, if they had made it or, or like, yeah, if, if originally like I made something for them and then eventually like, yeah, I showed them how to do it too. Like, again, like satisfy it's a very satisfying thing. Deeper integration with reality. I know I'm sounding kind of like a broken record. No, I, I, I love it. These terms are just not things that people rattle off. Like mm-hmm. when you're, in an academic setting, or for that matter, when I'm in a convenience store, I don't hear people using words like integrated with reality. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it would be nice if we did. Yeah. So I think there are definitely those things that like are considered to be like unnecessary hobby type of activities that I think are very, very valuable, very fundamental, like the shop class, the work, the, the carpentry, oh, for the, sure. the pottery, the ceramics, the painting, the the home ec or the, the cooking, the baking, like so, <laughs> so satisfying to like bake a loaf of bread. But did I ever learn that? No. Um, I don't know if it's just like assumed that if you want to do that, you could do that on YouTube now, but I think it definitely would be um, a satisfying thing, a delightful thing for students and a very like a, a, a worthwhile pursuit if, if we taught more of those things in school. And, and I think like if I were to design my own school, it'd probably be more of like those experiential and mm. uh, delightful, delightful and human activities that I think I would incorporate more into the curriculum. Just like, um, yeah, I, I think it, in my own life, I found it very satisfying to be able to make a loaf of bread and, and to really know the bread. Or like I talked about before, like trimming shrubs, like how cool would that be to like even teach teach a class i'm like all right this is how you trim shrubs because you're, you should do it for your own house someday don't don't just rely on all these like specialized experts to come in and do your own plumbing to come in and do your own carpentry to come in and do your own mowing and landscaping like wouldn't it be cool if you actually knew something and could do something on that's your, why on these jobs pay a bloody fortune yeah it's, it's kind of a shame that like we have all, like we have to hire like people have to hire out their mowing their sh- like i know like people just do that a lot often because they have like their own specialized things that they need to spend time on. But I think, it, again, it'd be uh, a greater sense of well-being for so many people if they 
like could do more of these things. Well, it would take their mind off of the stress of their main occupation as well. Mm -hmm. But I, I just think, gosh, maybe the ultimate skill would be if somebody could build a house. And the reason I say that is, is my old department chair at my old school probably could build a house. And he, there was nothing he was afraid to tear into. He could do cement. He could do plumbing. He could do electricity. He could do roofs. Uh, he could do all kinds of painting. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving out a whole bunch of things that he could do. He could do drywall. I said, what's drywall? <laughs> you know, he could just do all of these things. He could dig into all of these these tasks. It was just really rather amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, okay. I love it. So if we did more with that, with education, maybe we'd be better off. And let's face it, if it's human to work with your hands, and if we're not having kids work with their hands then maybe our educational system is not matched up with human nature as well as it could be. Yeah, it could tend to become too theoretic, theoretical, I think. Like, and I think that's like, it's, it's often seen in the face of the child that like everything becomes like purely theory and too abstract. And of course they're going to lose interest because it doesn't seem to apply to their daily life. And then they ask the question like, what are we ever going to do this or see this? In right. And, right. Of course. And it is a practical question. I think sometimes like you do have to consider that like not everything has to be like, like immediately like tangible, like, okay, you're going to see this today at this point. But, but I think there, there needs to be some like type of integration, um, and like they have to have like at least like the experiences so that like when you start talking about um, certain things in your classes, like they can they can think or they have the experiences in their life that they're pulling from. And they're like, oh, like when we're talking about this in mathematics, like I can see that that could be useful when I'm when I'm like doing this computer software or when I'm like working at home and, and doing this activity. Like I don't I just don't think like a lot of our students currently have very many experiences to pull from where they can actually apply the theoretical right, right. things that they, what we teach in school. Well, we, we did one particular day where we had kids out in the yard and one girl was given a shovel. And I was raised in a farming community. And honestly, she had no idea what to do with it. And uh, she asked somebody, how do I work this thing? And she was 16. And I, I, just, uh, I just thought, I, doesn't everybody know how to do this? And then I realized, well... Tim, you grew up in a farming community. Mm -hmm. This girl grew up in the middle of the suburbs someplace. So maybe that's why she doesn't know how to use a shovel. <laughs> and I'm thinking, she kind of got ripped off, though. Mm -hmm. Like you said, disappointed in your own education. I mean, gosh, I triple majored. But I look back on it and I think, gosh, I wish I would have taken something involving electricity and wood shop and just a whole bunch of these other things that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Deeper connection to reality, right. as, as you've been discussing, and also to fallback skills, yeah, which yeah. is good. So, yeah. well, let me go in the opposite direction. If we're short on practical skills, are we also short on academics? Because part of me, may, part of me thinks that if we're lopsided in one direction, we're probably lopsided in multiple directions. Mm -hmm. And so when we say academics, uh, let's just start simply enough. Do you think people love to read? enough the average student see i think people should love to read i'm a mm -hmm. lifelong teacher i think people should love to read mm -hmm. do you think people love to read enough no and, and probably because I, I mean i think it has to do with a lot of things but i think the way that in which we go about like giving our children literature it's 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 
a very like forced thing like um even like the way in which like they have children read books like it's like all right you have to do all these annotations every single page has to be annotated i mean to like make sure that you're doing your annotations and like this is I don't know, it's just like it becomes like a process stripped of like the, the like... Pleasure. Yeah, like the, the, like if you're doing it, you're just like doing it because you have to do it because you want to get the grade. And like very little, like I don't, I don't think I like read a book because like I, I truly found it delightful in high school. Like it, it wasn't until college when I'm like, wow, this is actually really rewarding and I'm glad I'm reading this book because it has something to say to me. And, has, and I have, I have um, I'm benefiting from from reading this and I have a, a greater perspective of, of whatever it might be now. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that like that is really given to our students now. It's, it's, it's and I, I don't know if it's like maybe a classical perspective. I've, I've been thinking more about like classical education and like the liberal arts education. And, um, and I think like maybe that is like a better, um, a better route to go where, where like, when you're when you're reading books or encourage encouraging students to to read these wonderful books um you're doing it in a in hopefully like a heightened sense of um curiosity and and uh and wonder and awe and and that's what you're trying to cultivate it's not just like all right we're going to do this because this is what's like required we have to because this book is on somebody's list from the state right but we're doing this like the reason why we're doing this is because there's something of value here, whether that's like we, we should be paying respect to those who came before us. They have something to say. Oh, for sure. And like we, we are going to benefit as people by spending time with this. Again, I think it kind of goes back to like that, that deathbed mentality. Like you should be giving yourself to worthwhile pursuits. And if you understand like it's worthwhile to like read this book, like there's more incentive there then it's just like, okay, it's worthwhile because I need to get the grade and I'll only do it because of that. Well, then I start resenting the process because it's like, why do I have to do this? Like there's, I, I, it's just the grade isn't enough in most circumstances. No, no. I, this is why people don't all become chemists. I mean, a chemist could make seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a year, maybe more. And people could just look up a salary chart and say, oh, I'm just going to do the job that pays the most. Mm-hmm. But that's not what people go into. People don't pick a job just strictly for pay. And you shouldn't take a class just strictly for the grade. Mm-hmm. I, I guess something I'm trying to ask is I feel like you've, you've addressed it in part is maybe we would do more of these practical skills and get better in touch with reality if we also did a simultaneous balance with better academic skills. Mm-hmm. Maybe right. I would rush to read the book. If I'd spent the morning working with my hands, then maybe in the afternoon I would love to read the book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I haven't had a chance to read anything all morning because right. I was rewiring the hops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And that's, that's uh, actually a kind of a good tie into my class that you mentioned before with the Western Civilization, which is more like an introduction to Western philosophy. But I really try to, to have the kind of that balance between the practical or like the tangible and also the theoretical um, it, like when we're talking about these philosophers, I, 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 I like to, um, attach a challenge to like whatever we're talking about. So like with Aristotle and like the uniquely human way to live, 
um, I, I encourage them, or I actually assign them to do something which is uniquely human. Um, but like it's the way that I propose like the class in general and these challenges is like this is your opportunity to, to test these things and, and hopefully like learn from Aristotle because these are like some of the greatest thinkers of our of our culture. And this class is hopefully going to help you achieve a happier life yes. or a life of greater well-being. And and if you're not interested in greater well-being, then like who are you? Right, right. You know? What are you what are you doing with yourself? Right. So if if the class I think is proposed in that way, then like who wouldn't want to be a part of it? I know it still takes it still takes attentiveness, it still takes some time and some discipline and uh, it still can be difficult, but if the reward is greater well-being and greater happiness, I think that's what we desire. Um, so yeah, with the, 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 I think the way that I designed the class is like, again, to be both theoretical, like we, we are like analyzing the text or like we're, we're entering into the text together, reading it, discussing it, but then we're also doing it. Like we're, we're doing what Aristotle talks about or we're, we're reading, Aristotle, uh, reading Seneca and we're doing like a comfort zone challenge because the mm. Stokes talked about like yes. you have to get out of your comfort zone and do things which make you uncomfortable. So I, I, I propose and give them the challenge of, of specifically doing the thing which makes them uncomfortable and, and seeing like, do you agree with Seneca now? Like you've done something that he suggests. Does that make you uh, actually a better person? And, and are you more well-rounded now or do you have a greater sense of well-being? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not only the theoretical, but okay, like we're going to take the theoretical and actually implement it and, and, and discuss whether or not that's actually bringing them to a better place. That's awesome. Do you think there should be more required courses or less? Um, well, I guess it depends on what those courses might be. Right. Um, I think there are definitely things that our students are missing out on and they're doing some things which like are a waste of time. Um, and not just our students. I, I feel like, hey, that's the United States. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not just sending St. James Academy. I'm not right, right, right. Not ripping on the academy. No, I, I think we do a good job. Yeah. Um, yeah. There'd be another conversation, I think, to discuss like what classes could be um, more like more advantageous for our students and uh, which ones might not be. But yeah, I definitely think there are things that um, I missed out on that a lot of students are missing out on and, and other things that are just kind of like, this seems like a bureaucratic class. Like we're just doing this because we have to do this. And, and, and those things I wish we <laughs> could do without. I am predisposed to always have less required courses and more electives. If I find out that a school has got 10 required courses, I always think, why not five? That's, that's just kind of where my own personal predisposition lies. I, I want everybody to choose to do something that will be beneficial for them and challenging. The only thing I guess I wouldn't let people choose would be total laziness. Like you can't do nothing. You have to take something. Um, I just think if you took things that you wanted to take, that your own personal discipline would, would increase. Because you'd be doing it because you wanted to do it. I, I feel like if somebody else is forcing you to do it, I don't see how your self-discipline goes up personally. Mm -hmm. That's just my understanding of human nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There would definitely probably be a case about like 
the times in which people take classes that they didn't want to take, but then they had a, a teacher that really provoked them and like encouraged them and helped them to discover the beauty of something like biology. You know, like there are those moments where it's like, I never would have taken Spanish. I never would have taken Latin had it not been a, been a requirement, but um, I definitely saw the beauty with a teacher that helped me to discover that. So there, yeah, there is not, I don't think the, the problem isn't just, um, isn't just like that it's a requirement, but perhaps maybe the way in which the class is um, arranged. Okay, okay. Um, I have a hypothetical question for you, maybe two. Suppose a mysterious benefactor comes along and gives you $5 million, but the only condition is you have to homeschool your own kids. Um, you're not bound by any requirements. You get to design the curriculum yourself. Um, what do you do in terms of the curriculum? It's mm -hmm. <laughs> a big question. Five million dollars. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of money. Yeah, just for my own family, or yeah, for your own family. Hmm. Well, and, and if it works out, then maybe the model is for other people. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'm not against homeschooling. However, I do think it's um, it's pivotal that my stu my uh, children would be exposed to other other children and other um adults as well like uh, there's only so much i think i can do and i think they they need external sources which validate maybe certain things that i say or maybe like improve upon the, the things that i say um like if i think back to my own parents i, I think they did a fantastic job of, of raising me and and giving me such a, a solid foundation and, and caring for me but there are also like things that I had to question and, and verify that were verified through external sources other than my parents. So when it comes to homeschooling, I don't think I would ever do it specifically just within like my house. You know, I think my, my children would have to have some type of outside uh, environment or some uh, Influences. Are you saying you turn down the five million bucks? <laughs> <laughs> I would take the five five million and, and develop some type of uh, maybe homeschooling community, or uh, I, there has to be a community. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it, and there is a community in the, the the immediate family itself, but I think there would have to be like others involved. I see. Well, a lot of homeschoolers actually do this. Right. I had any number of college students who wrote papers for me on homeschooling. And uh, that was always one of the knocks against homeschooling way back in like the 70s and the 80s were, well, hey, you have no community. So then they responded to that by forming all kinds of cooperative groups and sports and theater and just all kinds of things. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it does exist. Yeah. Yeah. If that were the case, and I'm, I'm totally for it. And I think... Um, Probably one of the wonderful benefits of it is like the ability to enter into these like these lived experiences, and I think there's probably more time because you have let the, you have less bureaucratic things of like all right, you, you, like at normal school, like it's like okay, we start at eight, we get done at three, and like homeschooling environment, you could definitely like really like you could start at eight and quit at nine p.m. You could. I mean, you, you just have the ability to like since the, the sizes are, are diminished, like you know the students at a very like individual level, you know where they are, you can adjust on the fly. You, it's just like, I think that's one of the, the wonderful blessings of like the homeschool um, 
the environment is the size and how like the teachers would just have a, a deeper um, interaction with the students because maybe you're like one to six or one to 10, you know, um, compared to one to 30. Um, so yeah, I think that would be a, a, a wonderful benefit. And, and as long as like you do provide those experiences where like you can, you can do the gardening and the pottery and you can play sports and, as long as it's not just like, all right, we're going to work from eight until 10 and then just go off and do, do your own thing. Yeah. Netflix. Like, right. That's definitely not, not a part of the plan. Right. Um, so yeah, if you can develop that, that environment, um, that wholesome environment, then it'd be wonderful. Be highly tempting. Maybe take that 5 million and build a little homestead. There you go. Kids could learn how to raise the livestock, mm-hmm. uh, kill the livestock, cook the livestock, and uh, they could garden and they could build sheds and other properties that are, or buildings that are needed on the property. All right. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, okay. Something along these lines, then a slightly different hypothetical question is: I heard about a family that bought a houseboat, and then they took it around the world. And I think they didn't spend any more than about $20,000 doing this. And then when they got all done, they sold the houseboat for pretty much about what they bought it for, maybe a little bit more. Well, in the meantime, over this year, they're taking their kids to Europe and to Asia and to Africa. And then they would dock at these cities and then they would take the kids into the museums. And, uh, you know, they were getting homeschooled on the boats and it was just for a year. Would you ever do something like that for a year if they paid you a million dollars? Your kids around the world. Don't give me any ideas, Tim. <laughs> Does that one sound pretty good? Well, yeah. I mean, I think like having those experiences of like different cultures is um, definitely something I'd like my my kids someday to have, or their just their their horizons are opened up. I think I I found much advantage or much. Um, benefit to like seeing the different cultures of Africa and in Italy uh, as a great blessing to be able to travel over there. And, and cause it, it questions like, okay, why do we do, why do we do this in America? Or like, why do we do way, things this way? Or what, I, or even like realizing how blessed you are to have air conditioning. Oh, for sure. Um, in every building possible. Yeah. It just, uh, having an exposure to different environments and different cultures, like helps you, um, understand like, Okay, I do things this way, but I don't. I don't have to do things this way. Or like I have these things in my life, and they're great blessings. Or you know, uh, just exposure to different things is wonderful. Um, it gives you a deeper appreciation for life. I think. Um, so yeah, doing something like that is, well, it could be an option. But uh, there's definitely uh, things to consider, like salary. Like where's the money going to come from? I guess if you said if I was getting a million dollars as a what the heck? That's right. Might as well. <laughs> Might as well do it. Okay, so here's another hypothetical question for you, but it could be practical because let's fast forward and your kids are now 18 and they're going off to college. So I don't know how many kids you have, maybe a three, four, five kids. And uh, at a certain point, they each turn 18. Well, somebody wants to go off to college and they want to major in something for which there are no jobs available. They pick, I don't know, something that sounds really cool to me, like 1940s French cinema. 
Or philosophy. Or philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got a philosophy degree. So they want to pick something that looks absolutely useless. And then you find out, hey, last year they graduated 40,000 people with 1940s French cinema. And there were three positions available for people with that particular degree. Mm -hmm. So the other roughly 40,000 people, hey, there's no position available. So your kid says, Daddy, I want to major in 1940s French cinema. <laughs> what do you say in response? Yeah, we, we probably, uh, definitely, I, I hope you have like a, a relationship with my, my sons and daughters that we could have a, a honest conversation about it. And, um, yeah, I don't think life is only about, uh, having the prospect to make money. Um, cause I, I mean, if I, that were my, my mindset going into college, I wouldn't have, uh, studied philosophy because I mean, like specifically, like there's no, there's not that many jobs for like philosophy teachers. However, I think there is like definitely something to be said with like how, like having a philosophical background allows you to think through things like. In, in different areas of your life in, in a very different way. So it gives you, uh, it's still it's giving you this um, benefit, you know? So it's not all being, it's not like you can't just break everything down in terms of like, all right, is this going to be able to make me money? But again, I, I would want to have a conversation with my son and my daughter and, and ask them if, uh, like, how they, how they, why, why they, why do, why do they desire to, to study what they're studying or, hoping to study and, uh, what's going to be, um, what's going to be the, like the benefit, like whether they're going to be able to benefit somebody else and give it themselves in a better way or, um, how they're going to be, become uh, a better human being. Cause like, there's like the, maybe that the aspect of like giving yourself to, in service, whether that's like being, uh, someone who's t taking over like a missionary type of role, you know, and that might not make me like more capable of making money throughout my life, but, there is still like something very beautiful when you give of yourself in a in a servant way, or even like giving of yourself in, in the service of the country through uh, mm -hmm. service in the military, or right? Whatever it might be. Again, like you typically don't look at those routes and say like, "Oh, this is going to make me a lot of money." However, um, it's a very wonderful and uh, fundamental thing to like give of yourself. Like that's what we're called to do is as Christians and human beings, I think it's like we find ourselves when we give of ourselves. So, so really it's your answer to the question. It depends upon how my kid is going to be giving of him or herself. You know, yeah, we're going to get at their motives. Yeah. And that's one of the motives that we have to look at. Yeah. But it kind of like John Paul II is kind of where uh, that quote comes from. Like man finds himself in a sincere gift of self. And I think like that's helped me like kind of uh, figure out, different life paths. Like, okay. should I, should I pursue this thing? Um, that's a good question to ask. Like, is this going to enable me to give of myself to, to others to a higher degree? You Did know? you get into a lot of the things like landscaping and, um, building cabinets and piano tuning in part as an act of service? Yeah. I mean, I, I, a lot of these things, they don't make a great deal of money. Um, I might make a little bit of money, but yeah, I think that might be part of like why I love agency so much is because like I I have yeah more to give yeah tools that enable me to help people, um, and it, it's 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 a satisfying and rewarding thing to be able to give like it's 
you don't want to always be in the position where you have to beg for other people. I mean, right. It's a humble position. It's a good disposition to have to be able to, to be, to, to be humble. Yeah. But it's also like, it's a, it's a rewarding thing to say like, Hey, I have a skill and I would like to help you and, and I'm not going to charge you a, a great deal. So if, if they said, I want to study 1940 cinema and, and they said like, I can really do a whole lot of good for myself and for other people by doing that. And they had like an actual like uh, argument to be made. There. A plan. Yeah. Then I'd say, okay, like we, we can be open to this, but if it definitely was like a dead end, like this is just a waste of time and there's nothing worthwhile in this study, then I would, oh yeah, I would definitely encourage them to think otherwise. Okay. Um, does student loan debt come into the picture? If one kid is going to graduate with French cinema mm-hmm. with zero dollars of debt walking out of school and the twin is going to graduate with, oh, I don't know, hundred. of student loan debt, same degree. Does that change the conversation? Yeah, I think it definitely, definitely does. Um, Because that's such an an inhibiting thing to have any sort of debt. Um, I guess if you have the, like if you become a doctor and uh, you have the ability to get out of that debt quite easily after a few years, that's not, it's not horrible. But as a general rule, I think, yeah. Anytime you're acquiring debt, it's kind of like, okay, let's think twice about this. Um, it's kind of my 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 thought on that. I know a lot of, like, Dave Ramsey, Mr. Money Mustache, a lot of people say, like, yeah, it's, if, uh, it definitely should be uh, a conversation. Okay. Getting into debt. Debt is going to come into the picture yeah. pretty much no matter what we do. Okay, so... Maybe just a few more questions, but one is, I think maybe some students or parents would like for their students, or maybe the parent himself or herself would like to try some new things, but fear ultimately comes into play. How do you overcome fear? Like you say, oh, I'd like to be a butcher and maybe work for high B. How do you overcome the fear that people would say, yeah, but I don't know where to start, and what if I I hurt myself with with a butcher knife? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is... uh... That's another good question. I think um, I think my fear is often like just looking like an idiot. <laughs> I don't want to like go into the butcher shop and like look like I have no idea how to work a, a knife. And um, but I think like the counter to that is just like remaining humble and like admitting like I, yeah, I'm not the best at butchering, or I, maybe I've never done it before. Um, and like owning that, that's a that's a it's a great skill like to have. It's just humility. Like, yeah, I really don't know how to do this. Or even like I've been doing more, like I said, carpentry lately. And I've, I've had the wonderful um, ability to go into, ability to go into the workshop in, in Kansas City, the Woodworkers Guild. And the amazing thing is that not only do you pay money to have access to all these tools, which are incredibly expensive like joiners or oh planers. yeah if you had to buy all that stuff yourself all these woodworking tools I thousands mean, thousands of dollars yeah so not only like do you pay 95 bucks i think it is a year to like have access to all these tools but i think the more worthwhile aspect of it is there's always a foreman who's like spent his life in carpentry who's always there keeping an eye on things giving advice and actually a lot of times there's like two of them two like older men um and it's just incredibly valuable to like admit like, Hey, I've never used a router before. I've never used a planer of joiner. 
like help me not hurt myself, but also like uh, tell me all the like the tricks that you know. Because um, I I could go into that situation in like after watching like one YouTube video and be like, oh, I know how to do this. I could I don't have to ask for help. Um, but I yeah I have a, such a higher risk of hurting myself, hurting the project, uh, wasting time. But yeah, they're just they're there to help. And if you go into it just saying like I don't know, help me out, they're like so ha so happy to do so. And, um, I say like that, that helps you overcome your fear is just like admitting like, hey, I'm not the best and that's okay. I'll, again, with patience, I'll, I'll get better and it's okay not to, not to know what I'm doing right now. If we could just admit that, hey, I need a little help, maybe get a mentor, be kind of humble, accept that you're going to start at the bottom, mm -hmm. be patient, enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just trying to compile all the advice that, that we've... Uh, it's the key to life. Maybe that's the summary right there. Right there. Well, just two last questions. My um, second to last question is, uh, what should I have asked Tyler that I didn't ask, that I forgot? Hmm. Uh, that's, I mean, that's already, so many good questions. Um, um, I don't know. I think we've covered so many already. I know we've, we've talked about, like, other podcasts that we might do in the future about like negotiation and things. That's right. Yeah, those those that'll be another podcast for another time. That's another podcast yeah. for another time. Okay. Um, my last question, my favorite question, I ask everybody this. Um, fast forward to age one hundred. You're sitting on the front porch of your house. Um, your wife is holding your hand. You are surrounded by children and grandchildren and probably great grandchildren. And one of the grandkids comes up to you and says, Grandpa um, you taught and you read a lot of books, but you also worked with your hands. What was good? What was wonderful about working with your hands? Because you had the best life, Grandpa. I'm more prepared for this question now because you asked me a similar one last time. <laughs> <laughs> I love this question. Yeah. Um, basically, you said what, what was worthwhile about working yeah, with your hands? Yeah, you're 100 years old and, and your yeah. kids are like, you know, hey, you worked with your hands a whole bunch. Yeah. People make fun of that sometimes. I don't think they should, but they do. Yeah. So what was good? What did, why yeah. was that good, Grandpa? Yeah. Um, I'll probably, again, just one more time get back to that principle of, of, of telling my, my grandchild that I think it just allowed me to see the beauty of life and integrate into the beauty of life to, to a higher degree and really appreciate the gift of it all rather than just being a, uh, a passive zombie, but uh, working with my hands and, and uh, interacting with the world and with the tangible world, it, it, I, I think it's given me an appreciation for the beautiful life that I've been given. That's an awesome answer, and thank you for doing this again, Tyler. Thank I really appreciate too. it. It's always a pleasure. It's great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. The next episode will be next Tuesday.